0: Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Well, welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am thrilled. I'm your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I'm thrilled to have back on this episode. This is episode 131, by the way, and I'm thrilled to have back. My friend James Grant, otherwise known as Jamie to many of us, Uh, Jamie, welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast.
1: Man, it's great to be here. I appreciate you having me back.
0: Well, Jamie, I was looking. uh, I had you on this podcast way back in episode 14. Uh, Thanks for believing in me way back when. You know, no one. You know, only had a handful of episodes before this. I looked; it was in January of 2016 that we released that episode. That's a, that's a lifetime ago now for everything you and I have been up to in the last seven years. Um, but, you know, I want to kind of give everybody who is listening here or maybe watching, because we also put this on YouTube now, and i happy to have uh, – I'm, I'm based down in South Florida right now. You're up in Tallahassee, Florida, so luckily uh, the power technology can bring us together here on screen. The last time we did this, I believe I was in your office uh, of a company you were uh, running at the time called CareSync. And we were we were on a little recording device. Uh, there was no cameras, no big microphones like this. Uh, so it's come a long way in many many ways in seven years. But you know, uh, for those who don't remember Jamie's story, uh, he uh, graduated from law school, but didn't take a traditional route of a lawyer. He actually went to go work and co-founded a, a healthcare company called CareSync, which uh, really helped digitize healthcare records. And that was what they were doing. But he also in that process got involved in uh, Florida public policy, ran for the state house. He was a state legislature. I think you served between about 2010 and 2018 in that time frame, Is that right?
1: Uh, yeah. Tw- 2010 with about a seven month gap in the middle 2010 to 2020.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So that whole, almost a whole decade there. Um, and uh, anyway, um, I, I also, Jamie, I uh, recently published a book uh, right here called The American Dream is a Terrible Thing to Waste. 100 agents of innovation share their fearless journeys in in today's economy. So Jamie, uh, you're actually, uh, there's a whole chapter on you in this book. And um, we we brought the story in the book up to a little bit beyond the time uh, that we had you on the podcast. We learned a lot about you uh, or from you about, you know, the role that Entrepreneurs could play in uh, in bringing some maybe disruption to the healthcare industry, but also how you were bringing that mindset of disruption and innovation to um, your role as a as a legislator um, up in the Florida House of Representatives. And then while you were there, uh, you helped create some legislation that helped reform some of the agencies in Florida that are responsible for helping uh, government agencies communicate with one another, but also with the public, uh, with We the People and uh and then in uh i believe it was in 2020 Ron DeSantis appointed you uh to lead the Florida um what is the name of the agency because it it changed names right
1: it's the Florida Digital Service so there's been a bunch of machinations of what the state technology office is the uh, the latest and current is the Florida Digital Service
0: and you were running that leading that effort as basically the state's chief information officer yeah. And, um, and so, I welcome back. So I, we just heard the news. I saw the news, uh, in the last, uh, two months that you, after almost three years in this role, you have stepped down. You're now going off and, and helping to run a, a new company. Uh, but, but let's, let's talk about what it's like to try to innovate in government. And, um, so let's, maybe you could talk a little bit about the steps of this agency be, being created when you were a legislator. Um, and then what, uh, what you did in the first three years of leading it after the governor appointed you to that role.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, it's, uh, as, as you and I were joking, kind of getting ready for this, it feels like seven years is an eternity. And then I disappeared for three years and into like the bowels of, of bureaucracy to bar fight every day with the bureaucrats um, that, that sometimes don't wanna see progress happen. Uh, but to give kind of the, you did a, a great job laying it out, to give a little bit of kind of the, the inception of the digital service, Florida from 1997 uh, to 2020 had had all sorts of different machinations. Uh, One of my favorite quotes uh, for those that know me like you do, uh, unsurprisingly, is a a President Reagan quote, uh, but nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. And Florida has four times prior to the digital service defied the law of bureaucracy that says if you create something for a function, it'll just maintain forever forever. And scale and and grow, whether um, productively or not. And when you look at some of the historical challenges in Florida, it was easy as a legislator to get really frustrated. And I'll give you some 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 numbers to put some some context to it. But there have been four prior technology offices that have been created by the legislature, failed to reach their kind of promise, and then subsequently abolished. So we almost like the. Uh, the, the Israelites in the Old Testament kind of going through the different journeys and, and wandering lost Florida kind of decides to modernize and, and, and be innovative as a state government, create something. And then through some, I think some systemic challenges and some just contemporaneous challenges at the time has, has really struggled to hit that. And so as a legislator, kind of the only legislator at the time that had made a living in the tech industry, um, I quite frankly was writing legislation on like a three-year roadmap of frustration. We were really frustrated that we weren't getting the kind of outcomes we thought we should be getting, and so uh, the legislation that created the digital service I, I authored, and it was like I said, a three-year roadmap, and and it was kind of from frustration, saying, you know, the state CIO is going to do this, and they're going to do that, and they're going to do this, and they're going to do it fast, and they're going to get their act together. Um, and so we got this kind of monumental legislation passed uh, to to try and reform and, and get things situated. And I was ready to start working on year two, uh, the next year in the legislature, and the governor's office called and. And said, hey, we want you to go run this thing. And I was like, heck no, man, that's a terrible job and the pay's worse. And so uh, for a little while, said no, and then eventually kind of felt the conviction of um, both the conviction and the challenge. Um, and so ultimately said yes. Uh, that kicked off about a three year uh, journey, like we said, uh, as the state CIO responsible for kind of two part one, building a startup within government. The functions of the digital service that were in that bill were brand new. The other half was running a state data center, which government, in my opinion, shouldn't be in the business of. And so it was a little bit like one part of turnaround, one part of startup from within government uh, that uh, that was a really amazing opportunity that I'm incredibly grateful to to Governor DeSantis for for giving me the chance to to do that three year battle of a tour service.
0: So it's interesting, you know, one of the great innovations in government uh, happened uh, in the late 1700s, when our founders created the Constitution and the separation of powers, right? And building off some of the great Enlightenment thinkers like Montesquieu and others. Uh, and so what's interesting is you're in one branch of government uh, in in the legislative branch. And uh, it was interesting to hear you really, as somebody who's got maybe part of the, the purse strings uh, and some of the oversight of the executive branch uh, agencies, That you were funding and wanting to get this you know in uh uh get it running get it moving get it doing all those things and so it's like somebody from another branch telling you know kind of having that accountability to another branch of government so then they said okay buddy here we're gonna switch you over there and see how you how you like uh being on that side of it so once you were on that side what was your perception of the i know you just said like before you went there like oh no i don't want that job it's a horrible job you're gonna have people like you know uh, Jamie Grant yelling at you, right? Um, and, and keeping an eye on you. But, uh, what was it like being on that side of the equation? Uh, did you feel like you you lived up to the person you thought you could in that in that moment, or was it what other challenges were involved?
1: Yeah, I think I think my first realization, um, and and I just kind of live by the rule that when you when you drop into an ecosystem, whether it's something you're running, a new job, whatever it may be, that there's this period of just shut up and listen and learn. Um, and, I, and I thought that it was going to be really important to maintain that posture because I was about to go work inside an agency, the Department of Management Services, that, that doesn't exactly have the best brand across state government. Um, it's not exactly an agency that historically people have enjoyed working with. Um, and then I was inheriting a function in state technology that a lot of the agency CIOs weren't very fond of and had really in my opinion, been kind of focused on some of the wrong things historically, like running a data center and trying to build up infrastructure or kind of empire build the way government can, can often do. Instead of being kind of a lean, agile, problem-solving organization, that starts with, what are we great at? What are we not great at? Stay away from the things we're not great at or shouldn't be doing. And so I took a a pretty aggressive posture with some of these folks who thought, okay, great, here's this politician who's been appointed. He probably knows nothing about tech and he's coming over here to play politics with state technology. And so I really intentionally tried to say like, hey guys, treat me like a dummy. How come? Why not? What if? No, we're not this way. Like just really curious question uh, asking posture. And I think the thing that struck me, the, 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 uh, the most harsh reality I had early was how much people from outside the political process say, well, I'm outside the process, you're inside the process, as if inside the process is a monolith. And one thing I would stress is that the difference between the legislative ecosystem and the executive or agency ecosystem is every bit as vast, if not more, than the private sector to the public sector. Hmm. I mean, they are two mutually exclusive different places with different incentive structures, with different stakeholders, with different levels of understanding. And I think in Florida, it's even more so, right? Like over the three years, having an opportunity to build a lot of relationships with my peers that were CIOs in other states, Florida is notorious for a very active legislature, especially in this space, kind of agitating things before roadmaps. Imagine college football programs that are changing coaches every two years becomes very difficult, right? Um, and so that was kind of the thing that smacked me first is just how different legislative world and executive world were, and how few people in executive, if any, understand legislative, and vice versa. And then I think the other thing that hit me, people talked a lot about, um, and, I, and I want to double click on something you said, separations of power, because there's a really interesting architectural challenge here uh, that we did some really cool work around to maintain sovereignty of separations of power and branches of government um, that, that would be good for us to touch on. People talk a lot, especially in a term limit environment, about how much staff kind of runs the legislature. You hear this all the time, right? And I candidly never felt that as a legislator. My staff directors when I was a chairman were always fantastic teammates. They understood that, that I was the chairman. I'd been on the ballot. I was ultimately accountable and that they were going to help work together to make our Objectives as a committee and mine as a chairman work. um, Man, the difference between that and what you experience sometimes with staff writing proviso into the budget that is law for a year that may direct how an agency administers something is just like eye opening. Um, So, whether people call it the deep state or uh, the fourth branch of government or moat dragons, as I used to train our sales teams on. Uh, those activists that are in the shadows, man, you better figure out how to either befriend them or go around them and survive, because they can they 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 play such a critical role that oftentimes it's just in the shadows where people never kind of see it or understand the impact.
0: Yeah, James, a few things you you talked about here. Uh, first of all, I saw in a in a in the um, I, I think it was the letter of resignation that you had to the governor. Um, I'm going to quote you here in it. I uh, saw this, this published in a news story. You said, I understood from the outset, this is reflecting on your time, uh, running this. I understood from the outset that bureaucracy cannot distinguish between friction and drama that robust and respectful conflict with the status quo is the lifeblood of innovation. And that I had to make a binary choice between making friends and making change. With eyes open, I chose to make change and never once reconsidered. So, uh, tell us a little bit more about that, and kind of the friction and the drama, and um, maybe you can explain a little, little more about that.
1: Yeah, so uh, it's kind of funny. There's two quotes that people always pull up in that, and and quite frankly, I, I, it was a you know I had some people say you know what was the purpose of of such a deliberate resignation letter, and I think because of the function and the work my team did. Um, It it wasn't about me saying this is what I did. It was a team that doesn't get credit when they do things to prevent things from making the news, whether it's a cybersecurity attack, whether it was a response to Hurricane Ian and the biggest Starlink deployment in the history of SpaceX other than Ukraine or finding missing people, leveraging AI to prevent first responders from having to go into life-threatening situations and, and let them kind of be focused on most critical mission. Um, all of those things. I was just really proud of a team. And so that was kind of the basis for it. But I also, it was kind of my opportunity, you know, in the legislature, you speak for yourself, you work for yourself and you get to uh, make the decisions you're accountable to voters. And and if you're worried about reelection, and so you kind of do that in the administrative world, you're always asking somebody like, you know, Hey, can we do this? Are we allowed to say that? What can we not do? It's it's a very different dynamic. Um, Very, very corporate, like in, It's like trying to get a press release out of a Fortune 100 company. There's 50 people and all these, it's just hard. And so I felt like the resignation letter was an opportunity to give what I felt like the little platform I do have, give a hat tip to the team. To the quote you're referencing, um, you either push on the status quo or you accept the status quo, if we start there. And innovation doesn't happen by accepting the status quo. And so in the innovation community, we are consistently looking at things that could be better. That's not to make it personal. That's not to say that this other person's a bad person or not good at their job, or, but we're persistently and consistently looking around saying like, hey, why is that the way it's being done? Our constituents deserve better. And what I found in the bureaucratic space is, and if it's really simple if you step back and think about it, but the incentive structure incentivizes people to tell you no. Because yes would mean risk. Yes would mean more work. Yes could mean more accountability. Yes could mean more attention or scrutiny. And so it's just easier to say no at all turns. And, and, put, and so in the private sector and in the innovation community, we have this love and lust for respectful, tension, and friction with the status quo to say, hey, let's do better, and the market rewards that. In the government space, as soon as you start saying, hey, there's a problem, you become drama. Mm, and yeah. I think the, the way that I would kind of close on that is saying in the legislature, when you think of the incentive structure, you know, the, the, the legislators that make a name for themselves in a lot of situations politically raise their hand first and say there's a problem and then scream really loudly about the problem it gets them the headlines, it gets the tweet, it gets them the, the cable news hit, it gets all those things. In the public sector, uh, on, on the other side, right? Like if you, if you shift from that same bubble to the executive side, people in the executive are like, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it because if it blows up, I don't want to be responsible for it. And so I learned that over time that like when I first got there and I saw some major fires and landmines, I'd scream really loud inside, like, hey, guys, we got a big problem, big liability for our boss. Like, We need to get on this. And it it was kind of every chapter of the book, metaphorically, was I would discover some monumental vulnerability. I'd scream about it. That was chapter one. Chapter two was the bureaucrats or the staffers saying, oh, he's just drama. He's, he's being hyperbolic. Chapter three, they'd go, oh, crap, he's right again. Let's figure out how to pick it up. And not to say I was right about everything by any stretch, but I had to learn um, how to operate in an ecosystem that actually doesn't want to change the status quo. And that's a really hard thing to do when you have kind of the, the innovator's mindset.
0: Yeah, I, I bet. Well, you know, you mentioned the difference between maybe uh, being in the public sector and the private sector. The private sector certainly has a lot more incentives, right? You have, a, you yes. have, the, you have to stay in business, right? You've, yeah. you've got to make a profit. All these things. With that being said, as as even pr- private companies grow and they become large, they become bureaucratic as well. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of a of a guest I had on this podcast a few years ago. I think it was episode 71. Alex Goriachev. At the time, he was uh, a chief in- innovation officer for uh, Cisco Systems. You know, a top Fortune 50 company. Alex has worked at. IBM and Pfizer and Napster and all sorts of uh, Silicon Valley type companies. And he wrote a great book that he published at the time before I named my company Fearless Journeys. uh, He has a book called Fearless Innovation, right? So, um, and he's he's now a featured innovator in our Fearless Journeys community. It's great. But one of the things I've learned reading his book is, you know, he really talks about how even in companies, you know, uh, innovation. First of all. The, the, you might have a, a chief innovation officer in a company, right? A lot of companies have this now, but he, he really cautions people in companies. Hey, don't, don't just put innovation in a department, right? Like they'll have like a <laughs> department of innovation, innovation. Pocket, needs, to, Yeah. Yeah. It needs to flow throughout the company and you need to have um, a lot of people asking questions. You also need to have incentives within the co- company and you need, you know, in some ways he, he even talks about how Cisco had this, uh, uh, not me, uh, but Cisco Systems had this whole, <laughs> um, had this, you know, whole like kind of company. Well, first, first they had a, a startup. Basically, they would they would partner with startup companies, right? So they had these like startup challenges for people outside Cisco Systems, and then people inside started saying, "Hey, we've got some ideas too. Why can't we compete alongside the people from outside the company?" And then they said, "Oh, that's that's a good idea." Then they also, you know, at one point, just had people within. Certain parts of the company, and then they said, "Hey, you know what? Everybody from the janitor to to the CEO really is seeing things around here that could be done better. everybody should be able to participate, um, and it should be encouraged and so I think it's kind of interesting too, even in the private sector, um the way we should rethink about how we we basically you know basically what Alex says, and a lot of people like probably yourself would say is the you know the market is always evolving the the world is always changing. Uh, You're either uh, if you don't adapt, um, you know, you're going to you're going to die. You're going to fade away. Right. Um, You're going to lose market share at the very least. And so how do you adapt? you got to innovate. And um, and then there's all sorts of ways to innovate. But tell me a little bit. You know, I don't know. I mean, I know you've worked for some private companies. You're working for one now that you just started. But um, how can you how did you maybe even in the state agency uh, try to uh, seek ways to uh, to get. You know, the, the involvement and the collaboration of many different people, uh, both in the state agency and maybe from outside as well, uh, to, to try to put forth some ideas and try some things and, and learn and grow.
1: So there's a, a few ways I'd answer that, but it kind of tethers both what you were talking about, your, your buddy that had been at Cisco and in the private sector at larger scale. Um, and, and something I used to talk a lot about is that entrepreneurship keep, at, at the time, and, and maybe even now, people were confusing that with starting a company. Like you had to be a startup entrepreneur if you were an entrepreneur. And I just think that's a really dangerous thing. Um, and so you start to you started to see people talk about understanding that an entrepreneur is really just somebody who sees a problem and solves it every day. And you can do that in the biggest company, you can do that in the federal government, you can do that in the state government, to the point that now I think you're starting to see more of this intrapreneurship uh, label being thrown around, right? To encourage exactly what you're describing, to say like, hey, it's entirely appropriate to work in lots of different environments. And we need an entrepreneurial spirit in lots of different environments. Not everybody's wired to be a founder or a co-founder and put it all on the line and figure out how they're going to pay their bills. And like, you have to have some screws loose to, to kind of play at the, the phase of a company that I like to play at. But I know that's where I'm wired to be. I know I'm not wired to be in big bureaucratic, whether public or corporate, uh, because I just struggle I, I, for some of the reasons you, you've described, but that doesn't mean that being in those environments um, can't invite that. Um, Francisco, the other thing I'd, I'd kind of highlight to, to be more directly responsive to the question is identify incentive structures and, and understand what the mission is. So you can't really build a team if you don't understand the core um, kind of character and ethos of, a, of an organization. And you also can't build a team successfully if you can't define the mission and define success. So we worked really hard to define what success was for the organization and then how to articulate it out. Um, I think at the end of the day, the biggest thing I would stress if I summed it was let the math do the talking. In the legislative process, like I said, you're incentivized for being early. In the investor community, you're incentivized for being early. Maybe other people don't understand it. Maybe you can't articulate it, but you took action early and you're rewarded for it. The only way to survive, I think, in the agency, corporate, or uh, public bureaucracy is to let the math do the talking, right? So rather than saying this deal is going to be really expensive or we can't afford it, actually put a scorecard together and say, hey, here's the economics of it. This is what it looks like. Here's how we're reporting this. Rather than saying, hey, we're doing cybersecurity. Start looking at the number of agencies before 2021 who had ever collaborated together in real time on cybersecurity efforts, which by the way, in state history in Florida was zero, and say, hey, now we're at 37, or zero local governments participating with the state voluntarily. Now we're north of 200. And so when you can start putting quantitative metrics around it, it becomes very difficult for some of the obstructionists. Um, or those those fourth branch of government, maybe people that just don't want to see progress, it's hard for them to argue with the math on the success. And so I think that's the thing I would stress is if it's the private sector, it's probably things like the P&L or your OKR or KPIs or whatever other acronym shows up to define kind of the periodic measurement, whether it's financial or operational. In the public sector, I think it's a lot more the operational. So what does it look like to define the metrics that you're going to, Define find success by and, and then actually stick to them.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, I think there's a lot that you said there, but uh, I think uh, one of the highlights is kind of basic economics, right? You've got to create incentives. Uh, everybody responds to incentives so that having a structure of incentives is great. Also, I, I totally agree with you in it about entrepreneurs are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I first started this Community Fearless Journeys, uh, one of the ideas was, hey, I'm going to help people that want to, you know, get a start on their on their entrepreneurial journey, right? People maybe who have not yet ever started a company and want to learn how and give them the tools and everything. And then, you know, the other side of it was people who maybe already are entrepreneurs, helping them to level up. But as you know, actually we got kind of going and I started thinking about it more and having continued more conversations with entrepreneurs like yourself, I started thinking, you know, and even actually becoming an entrepreneur myself, I started thinking this is a really hard thing to start a company. <laughs> it's hard. And um, it's-, it's, lonely. it's It's only it's and it's not for everybody. Mm -mm. Um, And like you mentioned, there's even people who want to start a company. The timing of doing it right now is not necessarily the uh, the time to do it. There might be there might be a time to do it. I want to push back
1: on that. I think it's ideal. I want to push back on that in a minute. Yeah, well, I timing.
0: Well, what I'm saying in there, in, in that person's particular life, right? Yeah. Like at their at, at a specific yeah, yeah. place, yeah, yeah. at a specific place. Sorry. There, yeah. I'm not saying right now. There's History, always a sure. reason.
1: There's yeah. always a re- Completely agree.
0: Yeah. So, so, but, so, as we started getting going, I said, okay, you know what? Really, instead of just telling you know, trying to uh, encourage people to start a company in terms of that's what we think of as an entrepreneur, like somebody who starts a company who's an owner. Um, you know, everybody though, I believe, can build an entrepreneurial mindset. And prepare yourself. Uh, maybe one day you do want to be uh, starting a company, right? And but you, before you get to that point, you've got to build that mindset of being able to withstand uh, all the all the things are, that are going to happen, all the obstacles that are going to be before you. Um, and then what you also said there too is everybody. Well, you could, we can, you can be entrepreneurial wherever you're at, anywhere, right? And um, you know, it could be anywhere within a company. And, um, you know, you also mentioned that the number one thing entrepreneurs do is solve problems, by the way, that's the, uh, the first characteristic I, uh, I outlined in this book is, uh, entrepreneurs are problem solvers first and foremost.
1: It, I'll tell you a couple taglines. One of the things my team hears me say, or my, my team would hear me say all the time is that incentives and in markets are undefeated. If you can fight them all you want, they will eventually win. And so if you understand the incentive structure in the market, you can figure out where things are going to go. Uh, one of the things, you know, um. And, and we haven't really caught up on uh, just an amazing education. That was a pretty, um, pretty chaotic experience. We had a board member. We were ten million dollars ARR at CareSync. We had scaled internationally, had about four hundred employees at, at the peak, and had a board member attempt a hostile takeover. We Ended up losing all common stock. Three hundred twenty-five employees uh, let go on a like a Thursday. Um, you know, just lost it all, and. The education that afforded me, uh, as painful as it was to lose, like eight years of equity, and I don't just mean the the stock equity. I mean just the sweat equity and all those other things, was just an unbelievable experience. And I think that you you have to look at these things and understand, like, hey, where are the incentive structures? Where are things moving? How are things moving? And if you understand that markets are undefeated, you start to understand like what the behavior will be the the first thing I avoid when we're hiring is liars and frauds, like zero tolerance for liars and frauds. We kick them out. It's like n- no exceptions. The number one thing that we look for in hiring is anticipation.
0: Hmm. And,
1: and I would argue that you're number one, right? Like find the, the first step to problem solving is anticipating and discovery, right? Like it's the, the curiosity that asks those questions. And so when, when, Now young people, I'm 41, which seems crazy and and have people asking me for career advice, which I don't, they need to raise their standards. (laughs) But (laughs) but like the thing I tell them all the time is I was like, there's always room on the team for the relentless person who never gives up. That's always looking to make things better. That is an entrepreneur. So you might just be on our customer success team or you may be doing UX work or you may, it doesn't matter what it is. Like at every level, that mentality, that mindset the relentless, refuse to give up, to anticipate and problem solve, and th- there's always room on every team for that person. Uh, the other thing we say, not to throw buzzwords at you or phrases, but uh, reliability is the most important ability. Yeah, you're a reliable absolutely. teammate, you're, you're there. So not to. Well, I think, I I think all of these,
0: Yeah, I think all these traits are again something that we should all build because even if you're going to go work for someone else, uh, these are the kind of traits people want to hire. I mean, you're right here. You're an employer telling people right now, I love, you know, reliability, punctuality, maybe, um, Mm -hmm. and you know, people who ask good questions that want to anticipate things and and have a sense of, of learning. Right. So all these, all
1: these, I'll give you another one real quick, (laughs) uh, like little tip that I've just learned over time. Like I hire three types of people, team sport athlete, uh, military, whether active or, or, or retired and then kids with siblings. Something that indicates teams sport like that. Um, mm. The scariest people in any organization are the people who are not as talented or educated or intelligent as they think they are. And the bigger that delta, the more dangerous they are. And the number one way to spot those folks is they're all answer, no question. Right? Like every time you walk in, they have the answer, there's no questions. I, I look back in life and there were coaches and teachers I annoyed the crap out of by asking questions. And I don't know why I was so curious as a kid. Uh, But I've never really lost it. And I don't say that I have a preference for it because it's how I'm wired. I say it because organizations need that curiosity you're describing. It's critical um, to to innovation. It, It starts with curiosity and anticipation in my mind.
0: Yeah, well, also uh, being curious and creative is one of the other characteristics I've outlined from uh, talking to so many entrepreneurs, <laughs> but I think it's that willingness to be open yeah. uh, and, and to learning. And, you know, uh, one of the things um, we do in the Fearless Journeys community is we have a book club. So every two months we choose a new book and we just finished reading a book called The Lean Startup yeah. by Eric Rice. Uh Great book. I, it's funny. I read the book. I was going back to the interview that we had um, and you actually, before, as you were still a legislator and you were looking at reforming uh, the state's digital services. You actually asked the question on our podcast interview, you said, how do we get government to act like a lean startup? And it just popped out of me again this time, because I just finished this book. But one of the big things in the book, the lean startup is he says, you know, he tells people, Hey, by the way, um, like start small um, and build that MVP, right? That most viable product, the the, and the minimum, sorry, the minimum viable product that you can do, um, to basically do one thing, learn. He's like, you're, you're not going, it's not going to be, you know, all the bells and whistles of what your final product's going to look like. But what you want to do is do it just a minimum enough effort so that you can find out what you need to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're always, we always need to learn the feedback from customers, yeah. uh, and what people actually want um, and it might not be what they say they want, but the, the behavior they exhibit to tell you uh, what they're looking for and what they want. And so, um, you know, you've now been involved in some different startups. Um, maybe you want to mention a little bit about that idea. I mean, Eric Reese, I think it's pronounced Reese R-I-E-S. R-I-E-S he, he talks about it in terms of the, building a system of validated learning yeah. um, and soaking all that information in so that you could then reapply it to your next iteration. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about that and then maybe you can also, uh, tell us a little bit about your new venture, Redleaf.
1: Yeah, happy to. So, uh, one of my favorite books, um, interestingly enough, it came top of mind either last night or this morning a podcast I was listening to and somebody was talking about how they actually like to recycle some of their favorite books rather than going and finding new books because we're just different people, different leaders, different teammates, uh, at the point in life we read it originally and and now, and mm-hmm. the lean startups on that list of like, man, I don't think I've read that since 2012, 2013, whatever it was. Um, but it's something that's like deeply ingrained in me. So there's a few things I like to kind of point out there. Um, one, what is a minimum viable product? Um, it's something that you're embarrassed of when you launch it. Like if you have waited to be proud of your launch, it is no longer a minimally viable product. But more importantly, um, and there's some really great illustrations that uh, that people have put out over the last decade or so uh, in this movement. But if you look at like a car, and you ask what the minimum viable product of a car is, some people would say maybe it's the 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 the, the, the axle. Some people may say it's the engine. Some people may say it's the chassis or the frame. In reality, the minimum viable product of the car was the skateboard. Hmm. It understood that people were trying to move from A to B more efficiently than walking. And that skateboard then said, wait a minute, this could be better if we had handles on it and it became a scooter. And then somebody said, well, gosh, if this scooter was motorized, it could go even faster. And we got to a, a, a mo- motorcycle or a moped. And then, and you think about that evolution. So there's some really cool, uh, I would encourage people to just Google minimum viable startup, uh, uh, <laughs> minimum viable startup. Uh, minimum viable product uh, illustration charts. The other one is a a triangle that basically looks at uh, the different elements of feasibility and beauty and there's different versions of it, but like, do you fill bottom up or do you fill left to right? So it should accomplish the job and be feasible, uh, delightful, uh, but like a little bit of everything so that you do get that user feedback. I think the, 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 the last piece, and I'll, I'll, I'll kick it back to you and then go back to Redleaf because I don't want to just ramble at you. I didn't find a single user story in government in my entire tenure that wasn't created by my team after I got there. It was horrifying. So we're going into these like really significant um, either crises or prospective builds of things. And when I would ask how many transactions a second before this thing breaks, a team would say, and that's tough to tell. Hmm. It's horrifying in, in the height of public scrutiny. More importantly, like who's the customer? What does the customer need? What are the user stories? What are the personas? And, and, and that was something that was really interesting. I think the other piece that I didn't anticipate was that like, as a legislator, if you really make the parallel um, from public sector, like legislative to executive, and, and make that parallel to the private sector, being in the legislature is like being a member of the board being an agency head or a leader of something like an agency is like being a C-suite operator. They are fundamentally different things. And man, we say all the time as kind of libertarians or conservatives in the the proper context of what those philosophies represent, uh, more so than than what kind of the labels have, have turned them into recently, that you cannot legislate outcomes. And this is something I would stress, like, Man, I, I, we would, I've said it on the House floor. I've said it in committee. I've heard lots of people say it. But that was always, from the legislative perspective, talking about the nuclear family, educational outcome, like all these different things that you could pass good policy, but you couldn't force people to do What I also realize now is that you cannot force the agencies to do anything. Like they can just say no. So it didn't matter that the legislature said that the state CIO and the Florida Digital Service had this different authority to access different things. If those agency CIOs or agency heads weren't going to give us access, to the data or access to the applications, we couldn't do our job. So um, that minimum viable product is so critical um, in the public sector, because it becomes kind of the point of no turning back. When you can start getting data sharing agreements with, with agencies, you've taken off the table the ability for that fourth branch of government, like obstructionists, to say, well, we'd love to do that, but we don't have a data sharing agreement in place between the or Whatever that may be. And when you start showing people the better, faster, cheaper way to do something, it starts to create a little inertia and momentum. And so the minimum viable product to me in the private sector means something very, um, very concrete. In the public sector, those same elements just end up looking a little bit differently. But that was how we made so much progress in the digital service uh, in just three years to kind of transform Flora's reputation nationally is kind of a. A laggard in the space and a tough job to take because of the legislative model and all of those different things into the national leader on building out enterprise cybersecurity. It was really an MVP mindset that we operated the digital service around.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, well, okay, so you you've uh, you, you've done this great work, uh, James, in, uh, in 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 Florida government. Uh, now spent between the legislative branch and the executive branch almost thirteen years. Uh, And by the way, it's important to note to people who maybe aren't aware that in the Florida legislature, the Florida legislature is a part time job. So many legislators have other jobs, including full time jobs. And most of that time, you were you were uh, one of the head people at CareSync, uh, as you mentioned, um, before you went into um, this full time role with the state agency. Uh, So um, now you're you're moving out of there and you're moving back into the private sector. And, um, you know, I've seen some mysterious tweets about Redleaf. Um, and I just want to know what the heck Redleaf is. And that's R-E-D-L-E-I-F. Uh, I know your website is R-E-D-L-E-I-F dot I-O. So yeah. there's, I've been there. Tell us a little bit more about what you are uh, now doing there and what, what the purpose of the, uh, the company is.
1: Yeah, so um, thank you, one. Two, um, I think I peeked at the direction of the logo creation. I obviously didn't uh, design it all, but it was a concept I, I had somebody work on. Um, and so the first thing we did when it was kind of like, what is he doing? What is he doing? We just threw the logo up and said, sign up. Um, and some people had some real fun with that, um, uh, both at my own expense, but also just like, Hey, what is, this and,
0: and the logo was like this Buffalo with a bunch of like art inside it. Uh, you know, a little, somebody else looks like they're on a journey or something. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not even looking at it now, but it's, I've seen it. So, um, so yeah, I guess people were trying to figure out what the heck you were doing.
1: Yeah. So you crushed it, number one. Uh, Thank you. Um, So Redleaf, the name is a mashup of uh, Eric Red and Leaf Erickson, uh, father and son. Uh, My mom's side of the family is Norwegian. My dad's Scottish. Um, I wanted the core of the company to be kind of the journey exploration piece. So uh, one of them found North America, one of them found Greenland. Um, So the name is a little bit of a hat tip to my heritage. Um, And the logo was intended to be kind of that frontier mentality of always, looking at what's out there, what's next. So um, I want to get back in the product game eventually. For right now, what Redleaf is, is a services company. Uh, we have three different service offerings. So for companies or, or uh, public sector entities that are trying to make sense of this big ambiguous term called cybersecurity, or this big ambiguous term called digital transformation, uh, we do blueprint and design work. So that's really predicated at coming in, doing the user stories, developing the scorecard. What are the metrics that drive success or core objectives? And then how do we build for you a blueprint the same way that you would hire an architect before you, you build a house, right? Like it's probably wise to, to have blueprints and an, and an architecture in place before you just start building a house and laying pipe and electric and wiring and buying te- lumber and all those kind of things. Um, and what we see time and time again is that organizations just jump to like, I want to implement that tool or I want to know what Gen AI can do for me. Rather than kind of stepping back and saying, What am I trying to accomplish? Who's my customer? Who are my users? What does this thing need to do? So, we're doing blueprint work both in the cybersecurity uh, and digital transformation space. So, everything from building out an enterprise cybersecurity program to figuring out how to automate business processes uh, on the other side. Uh, for folks in the space, uh, uh, a CISO that would be responsible for cybersecurity, I, I try and explain to people. A great CISO operates like a defensive coordinator in football. Their job is to keep the Chinese, the Russians, and the other threat actors uh, off of the scoreboard, right? Like prevent them from doing bad things. And then our chief data officer or our chief innovation officer, our chief technology officer, whatever uh, the structure looks like in a company or organization, is your offensive coordinator. How do they put points on the board? They should be working together. How we do things like retiring legacy systems, retiring mainframes, um, and all sorts of, vulnerabilities that, that threaten organizations by way of a data breach or ransomware, the same way that those, or, those, those systems prevent business efficiencies. Um, and so those blueprints are a big piece of that. The second thing we're doing, uh, aside from that, um, is something we're calling SLED as a service. So it's a kind of a twist on a new kind of SaaS uh, where people use the software as a service, but SLED as a service intended to be um, kind of a quarterback or a translation layer for people trying to innovate in the public sector. And it's really a manifestation of what I realized from having been on the front lines of legislative leadership, executive leadership, and then industry or or company leadership. Um, And so it's really built around coordinating everybody to be more efficient in the role they're doing, um, to help drive innovation in the public sector. There's a ton of work that needs to be done there. From 2020 backwards to 2005, if you just looked at that 15 years, the state of Florida had $157 million, I think it was $157.4 million in projects that were canceled. And these are just large projects, $10 million or more. And then it had like $320 something million dollars of projects that were cost overrun, schedule overrun, change orders. That's that's a half a billion dollars that that can be described as nothing better than waste. So how do mm-hmm. we as a community nationally come together and figure out how we can share best practices, opportunities? not build everything from scratch, um, and start to lean into a SaaS-based world. SLED as a service isn't designed to help companies do that on a national scale. So uh, we're going to have some fun. We just actually today opened up our first cohort. We're doing it like an incubator accelerator, where there's a cap number of companies we go really, really deep with, rather than just taking anybody and everybody that that, that wants to be there.
0: That's great. Well, I love uh, going back to kind of what you were earlier saying, when you're going in and maybe working with customers that want to Try to understand what they should be doing, and not just not just buying a bunch of products and doing a bunch of things uh, for no good reason. Um, but it 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 almost seems like that is applying the lean startup mentality of uh, uh, you know for customers, right? Like um, you don't let's 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 go in a little bit first and learn what you need and what you don't need, and, instead of just you know throwing everything there and realizing, man, we spent so much money or we spent so much time working on something that we didn't even need. Um, and then, uh, also you're applying that same mentality, I think, to, uh, what you were just saying. I mean, I think it was one of the last chapters, maybe the last chapter of the lean startup. And it's called something like stop wasting people's time. Um, but you could also say money, right? Time and money. Um, but I think a lot of it is, uh, what you were just saying there, like in government, especially there's so much waste, there's so much waste, but I think, um, Eric Reese in that end of that book, he kind of in his epilogue or whatever, he talks about he goes back about a hundred or so years to the beginning of what what we now refer to as lean manufacturing, and basically he says, you know, we we had all this great uh, innovation in manufacturing that reduced waste in manufacturing um, on companies that were doing things on a very large scale, and now you know in the entrepreneurial arena, especially in the startup arena, there is so much waste. I mean, just think about venture capital funds that you know, nine out of 10 things they put their, their money into uh, lots of money, um, never succeed. Right. They're, they're, they're hoping for that one out of 10 or whatever that does succeed that offsets and makes them a lot of money. But, uh, but it's, he, I think he basically just says, you know, we've, we've come to accept in the startup area. Uh, we've come to accept a lot of waste. And, and I think he, I think his book was, was a little bit challenging that yeah. um, basically saying, you know, yes, we're going to learn through failure, but let's, let's 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 learn a lot earlier so we don't we don't we don't uh kind of fail on a big scale we can we can learn about where we need to go and and i and i think i see that in in some elements of your new company here and what you're doing is trying to help people learn earlier what they need what they don't need and also to save people a lot of time and money
1: so i think i think you've touched on something really powerful there i think there's a big difference between intelligent risk and waste yeah and so Inherent in the innovation community is risk. Like you have to be okay with failure and getting back up off the mat and going. That doesn't mean you're reckless. It doesn't mean you're foolish. And so how you help people or how you as an organization make the risk more intelligent. Like there's something I almost included in the launch for Redleaf that I'm really excited to put together. But at the end of the day, like that, that product offering is not ready. So if somebody said, "I want that," I'd say, "Hey, we'll be back in six months." And it would take right. So like, just having the discipline to understand, okay, I think like minimum viable red leaf is these blueprints for cybersecurity, these blueprints for digital transformation, and then serving as um, kind of a quarterback or an API layer for the sled ecosystem to figure out how to operate. That might not. that that might have failure involved in it. Like I might start realizing, hey, wait a minute, all of a sudden it doesn't make sense to do some of these other things or I got to tweak these other things before we expand to other things. But I think intelligent risk is a very good thing. I think the thing I'd kind of come back to in the public sector space specifically that's so gross is we're actually incentivizing the outcomes. We pay these systems integrators by the hour. Imagine if we paid road builders by the pound of asphalt. We'd get dizzy driving those roads. They'd be so crooked, right? Like It would just be all sorts of excuses as to why the road cannot be a straight line. And so we don't require by state law people to disclose change orders and canceled contracts um, and, and cost overruns. We actually incentivize these companies to underbid things to win it, get government hooked on the per hour basis to then change order and right size it after. It's like just a known thing in that space. And so, you know, one, one thing I would stress if, in, in kind of landing a little bit, not to, not to preempt any other questions you have, but like, if I could stress anything for the public, for the, for the disruption of the public sector to advance innovation, it's the, the solution and function agnostic look at purchasing and procurement incentives and policies. Like the innovation community needs to come together and say, like a think tank, here are best practices that need to happen in every jurisdiction. And if that happens, then we can get to the competition between the different logos or companies that want to compete for the dollars. But we first have to come together and say, why are these projects consistently failing? Why are they consistently running over budget? Why are they littered with change orders? And a chunk of it is because government doesn't know how to write the criteria for what it's looking for, because it hasn't done the user story and discovery work. And then simultaneously, the companies look at it and they're like, man, if I can get paid by the hour, every hour is profitable for me. Why am I worried about doing it faster? And why am I worried about doing it inefficiently? That's actually leaving money on the table. Yeah, We got to get those incentive structures right if we ever want truly modernized government services.
0: That's great. Well, you've you've done a heck of a job, uh, Jamie, trying to get, uh, you know, get those incentive structures right uh, in government, and now back again in the private sector. Uh, let me let me ask you one question about Redleaf, because um, you the so if, if there's people listening here and they're wondering, you know, what are the kind of companies, um, or that you're you know may, that would maybe be most beneficial, kind of the ideal type companies that are out there that, that could that could be using uh, Redleaf.
1: On the blueprint size, I think it's, it's organizations that are trying to figure out how to secure their digital landscape. And that could be everything from a small, mid-sized business uh, to very large organizations that say, hey, we'd love to have a second set of eyes from a team looking at what we are already doing or how we could be doing more. So one of my kind of fundamental rules is everything scales. Um, so, so somebody from that small, mid-size all the way up to a, a Fortune 100 that says like, hey. Uh, you you've designed something for a 115 billion dollar enterprise called Florida, which would put you somewhere around 60 on the Fortune 100 list, Lex to tra- Target and J.P. Morgan, right? Like, so um, we've done it in a in a really complex environment. Um, you know, I think there's there's going to be a lot of those mid-sized businesses that are going, hey, I just watched somebody get breached. Um, but man, if you if you look at the, the cost to these organizations, typically about 7.5% market cap lost following a, a data breach by a publicly traded company. Billions yeah, and of what, dollars of and what, impact.
0: What was the particular thing that really gave you the idea um, to start uh, this company?
1: Um, I think looking around, and, and you touched on it at the open, it's a blessing and a curse. And I had to go through like a month long um, process where mentors and really good friends who will tell you that idea is stupid or that deck is terrible. Um, to be honest with you, right? The distillation of having been, you know, a recovering lawyer um, has been in the public policy space, has operated in the, the healthcare space, tech-enabled services, all these different things. Like people are like, "Man, you're so lucky." There's all these different things you can do, and I'm like. Man, I, I, I'm grateful for that experience, but it's also challenging when you try and put together like the minimum viable Red Leaf and say, what is Redleaf 1.0 or what is Redleaf MVP? Um, I'm laughing because uh, I just realized like, I closed down windows for this. Uh, each of the decks for the service offerings, like there is a deck called minimum viable sled as a service. Mm-hmm. Um, just to remind myself, like this has to be something that's minimally viable. So I looked at the ecosystem and I said, okay, um, maybe the best way to sum it up Uh, Francisco, sorry for the ramble. Uh, But that's a great question that kind of caught me. I think the biggest thing I'd say is that we're still in an environment where people will openly and say without reservation, that's the technology side of the shop, not the business side. And that is just mind numbing in 2023. They're the exact same thing. If you're in the C-suite of an organization today, or you own your own business today, and you're not understanding what an opex and SaaS spend, it looks like to do more of your business operation. I just don't know how long that, that posture lands, right? Like, So getting CISOs and CIOs and CTOs and all the, 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 the CXOs from the technology space, start understanding you are core to the business. Like you talked about earlier with the innovation thing innovation is not in a bucket. Your buddy who said like, you can't just have a chief innovation office and it be a division. It's got to be horizontal across the entire ecosystem and the entire org chart. And I think that's probably what hit me was just how much waste there is and how much opportunity there is. And then trying to distill that down into a couple of different product or service offerings that kind of march towards the the roadmap of what we want Redleaf to be. But in a way that delivers tangible benefits to a customer to the point that they look at us and say "I'd buy that again and I'd refer that to somebody again um, maybe culminating in a goal that says customer retention is way more important to us than customer acquisition
0: yeah, that's great well, I love how you have the um the you you are you have it on a tab minimal minimum viable red leaf right and I think you're really incorporating what Eric Reese uh, talks about in the lean startup because he actually basically says you need to have uh, a mindset of knowing this is the minimum viable product. You need to have a mindset of maybe maybe putting it on the calendar or putting it at different stop gaps of, hey, when we get to a certain point, we need to look back and say, what did we learn? And should we, I love what he says. He says, should we pivot or persevere? Yeah. Because we have this idea as an entrepreneur and I preached all the time, like perseverance, perseverance, right? And perseverance is, is, is good to keep yourself going. Yeah. But if you persevere in the wrong direction, for too long, um, you're, you're, you waste a lot of time and money and you're probably going to fail. Um, you gotta have those points where you gotta know when to pivot and boy, if nobody learned that in 2020 about the importance of pivoting and, um, and being adaptable, uh, we're never going to learn it. So, um, but you have pivoted in many parts of your career and you're now pivoting, uh, red leaf, uh, in different, uh, uh, different ways forward as well. So I want to congratulate you, and on the behalf of the people of Florida, thank you for doing such a great job there, um, leading this this new state agency on helping um, you know to digitize records and and all all other things, uh, technology, and you know help us save money, help us learn uh, information, share information better. I mean we we live in a in a free you know society. Supposedly, right. And uh, and so we're supposed to be sharing, Um, um, you know, we the people are supposed to have access to information and all these sorts of things. So I think when we're talking about technology uh, and the rapid advancement of technology today, there's there's no excuse for, you know, the people to be able to learn, you know, get access to information a lot faster and for, you know, divisions of government to be sharing it with each other as well. So you've done a, a great job. I know there's a lot more uh, to do so much um, more. Yeah. Look, uh, maybe this is the last question, Jamie, cause we could keep talking for hours, but, um, you accomplished a lot and, and what, what maybe is something that, um, is still, was still a challenge or something, maybe, maybe something that couldn't be accomplished or you never saw its accomplishment or just something that is still one of the biggest obstacles in that role for, for innovation within, within, uh, government, and particularly talking about state government of Florida.
1: It's a great question. Um, there's so much left to be done, right? I, I think, you know, my team would hear me say all the time, two things can be true. Um, we accomplished a ton. And what we did in three years, quite frankly, the the pandemic was a huge opportunity um, because when you're operating under an, an emergency order, you can run a lot more like the private sector than traditional, you know, the handcuffs and speed limits of bureaucracy and government. Um So, so, so proud of how much was done in three years. Uh, It was transformational work that was done. Also true, like just touching the tip of the iceberg. And so I think a few things I would highlight and I touched on earlier, um, the public policy around purchasing and procurement and proviso, getting legislators and committees and chairmen and, and chairwomen to understand what actually happens when something goes in the budget and how it operates and I mean, I actually couldn't access the money that was appropriated to me without legislative staff agreeing to release it. I mean, that is asinine mm-hmm. by any construct of separations of power. Um, but it was reality, unless the legislature, you know, came in and said like, hey, why aren't we letting the team that's supposed to be building this spend the money? Um, and so you just find the, the, like the fourth branch of government, the deep state, the, the moat dragons, whatever anybody wants to call it, they are so much more real and powerful than I ever imagined when I took this job. And so you really have to figure out how to, how to kind of do that. I happen to think that like transparency, open sourcing the lessons learned, those kind of things go a long way to getting people to understand like, man, that's, that's crazy. One thing I mentioned real quick, uh, if you have a second. The separations of power, um, I believe in them so much that we designed a completely federated model. So to give an example that people don't necessarily think of, the the digital service sits inside of the executive office of the governor, so squarely inside the executive branch. But if you're supposed to do enterprise cybersecurity and you have these cabinet offices and you have the judicial branch and you have local governments and you have the legislative branch, how do you secure their digital infrastructure, but not have access to their email? Hmm. Right? Like, all of a sudden, you have to start designing the center of excellence in a way that may not be a problem in the corporate world, or if you weren't responsible for the totality of things. Because in the corporate world, the CEO says, hey, you're going to do it, or the EV, whoever says, you're going to do it if you want to keep your job. If I was just responsible for the governor's office, then you don't have to worry about the legislature or anybody else. We were responsible for anything that happened at an enterprise level. And so how do you design the architecture to say the legislature is going to be supported by the digital service? We're going to help identify what are called indicators of compromise or help them do incident response if they, if they have a problem. That doesn't mean we have to have kind of admin rights to be inside their stuff. Um, so the, the analogy I would give often is, you know, we're used to kind of community policing, at least here in Florida, I think, I think places like San Francisco could learn a thing or two about it right now. Yeah. You don't have to let a sheriff's deputy in your bedroom 24-7 just to have good community police. And so we built the kind of the digital equivalent of let's keep the outside community safe. Let's be able to support people that invite us into their home if they've had a burglary or a fire and they need first responders there and then kick them out. Um, but I think just understanding. I know that's a lot, but but like if I was to drive any one thing, if we really want to modernize, we have to help people that are in positions to influence it, who I, I believe have good intentions to try and influence it, to help educate them with what they need to be doing to make a difference. Because, in some, even as the state CIO with lots of statutory authority, my choice was effectively to try and win somebody over to do what I want them to do or to tattletale. And with a private sector innovation focused mentality, tattletaling doesn't get you repeat business. And That's too true. much of the ecosystem right now in Florida specifically. Um, requires that buy in, which takes time. We still don't have a digital driver's license live to the public. I passed that, leg- I authored that legislation before I left the legislature. That's purely just a construct of, you know, in that case, an agency obstructing over time because they wanted to do this big project. So much so that Apple called me at some point early in my tenure and said, Hey, we'd love to set up a call. I had asked Apple, I don't know, six, seven years prior to this phone call, like, Hey, guys. The identity space is really interesting with some of the stuff you're doing. What about a digital credential? Like, What would it look like for us to partner to maintain the privacy and autonomy of the, the, the citizen, but simultaneously give them an option to have that hard card authorized digitally? And uh, we've been working on it so long, worked on the legislation. Senator Brandis was a great partner in, in, in that. Uh, we still do not have a meaningful digital credential here in the state of Florida five years later Georgia and Arizona and a number of other states. My, my buddy, J.R. Sloan, if you ever want another state CIO per, perspective, uh, Mandy Crawford in Texas, J.R. Sloan in Arizona are two of the best. Uh, but JR led the nation. And if you're an Arizona resident right now in your wallet, you can have an authenticated version of your driver's license in a, in a digital way. Um, so just little things like that that really aren't that hard technically. And I'd maybe some there. It, this is not a, an issue of technology. It's a matter of people. It's like any business. Like This is not hard to do technically. It is not hard to design or build or deploy the technology. The hardest part is the people. And if we can figure out how to kind of win the people, we'll start to see government services transform in a way that move maybe from aspiration to reality.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good place to land this, I think, because I think people make a big difference. Uh, that's why this is called agents of innovation. Yeah. Uh, you do need those agents of innovation, like James Grant, uh, to be in places, whether it's in private sector companies or uh, within uh, the halls of the legislature, um, or uh, or even leading a state agency uh, where he was the chief innovation, or so, excuse me, the chief information officer. But we know that you're an innovator at heart, James. So thanks so much for coming back on the Agents of Innovation podcast. What an amazing update we had here, um, and you know. I know when and see when I pick these guests, uh, you know, I, when I reach out and ask people to be on this uh, this podcast, I really look at people who are I think really standing out. And I, I saw that in you over seven years ago when we had you on one of the early guests. And then boom, look at this career—it's it's, it's uh, really gone in a great direction, and you've just been really an agent of innovation in in many ways, uh, in many places. And um, so, thanks so much for being on here and sharing your story and sharing your perspective. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, for people listening and watching. Don't forget you can read about James in this new book called the American dream is a terrible thing to waste by yours. Truly, uh, Amazon, audible, all the places. So, uh, James, thanks again for being on here,
1: man. Thanks a ton for having me. It was great to, as I kind of emerged from like we were joking the three year, uh, hibernation and bureaucracy not hibernation, but like disappearing from my friends and family and everybody, uh, kind of going 24 seven in that job. Um, it's great to catch up with you. I love the work you're doing, man. Um, I know we were saying it uh i'm I'm like getting to read again after three years of just really not having the, the bandwidth as crazy as that sounds, um and so I look forward to checking out the book um humbled that you you had me uh, back then and again, um and just love the work you're doing to help build the community and, and here to help in any way I can.
0: Well, thank you so much, and um yeah, just just a great pleasure having you on and um uh, i I was just thinking I don't remember the last time we saw each other in person. Um, But when I one thing I have uh, my own copy of this book, and uh, I I have a goal of getting around and seeing everybody in person so you can sign the chapter that's about you. Uh, So so I'll tell you the last time we got together.
1: It was in Tampa with that small group. Uh, Yeah. The the dinner that that you helped put together was the last time. I don't know when that was, but it
0: had to be at least five years ago. I think so.
1: Uh, it and it's clearly you, before
0: the craziness started it's,
1: It was before it was definitely before COVID. Um, and man, you talk about a testament to the work you do in the community you build, like just thinking about some of the people in that room, like there's some, some real firepower, um, and really relentless change agents in there. Some folks I still, I met that night that I still keep in touch with. Um, but when you said I, you just triggered my memory when you said, uh, I don't remember the last time we got together, but it was when we put that, you, you put that dinner together and had us, had us all together.
0: Well, that's what we like to do, bring people together, connect you with innovators across the world like James Grant. So thanks, James. And uh, thank you all again for listening to this episode of the
1: Agents of Innovation podcast.